Deep in the back of your mind, you've always had the feeling that there's something strange about reality. There is. Cyranoid, death mushroom, nanoparticle, mechanical messiah, fist punch evolution. On our award-winning science podcast, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we examine neurological quandaries, cosmic mysteries, evolutionary marvels, and our transhuman future. New episodes come out Tuesdays and Thursdays on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcast. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And this is a special episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You because we get to talk to the founder of a magazine and fabulous website that we cite all of the time on Stuff Mom Never Told You. All the time. All the time. And that is Andy Zeisler, who is the co-founder of Bitch Media, which is like an incredible media empire now, started as a zine in the 90s, uh, as all great things do, minus this podcast, which definitely did not start as a zine. But maybe we should start a zine. Maybe we should. We can do the reverse. Yeah. Work our way back to a zine. Yeah, we were thrilled to get to talk to Zeisler live on stage at an event called Lady Fest here in Atlanta, where Caroline and I reside. Um, and we talked to Zeisler about her new book, We Were Feminists Once, From Riot Girl to Cover Girl, The Buying and Selling of a Political Movement. Yeah, she was fabulous to talk to. She is the most brilliant and yet approachable, awesome feminist. I mean, aside from you, Kristen. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah. But but we were so lucky to get to sit on a stage with her and be able to ask her all these questions. Kristen and I had each just finished her book. And so what a luxury and a privilege <laughs> to finish a great book like the one she's written and then sit down with the author and ask her all sorts of questions. I mean, the book centers on this idea of marketplace feminism and how the feminist movement has changed and evolved over the decades and how we find ourselves now in this period where people think that either putting on a T-shirt that says feminist is sort of the end-all, be-all. That's You you put on the T-shirt that's feminist and you're done. You claim the label. Um, Or that... uh, Choosing your choices is also the most important rather than, for instance, fighting for paid family leave, fighting for equal pay, things like that. Well, and she also focuses a lot on how feminism has been commodified now and co-opted by a lot of companies which are realizing, A, what a valuable demographic women are, but especially um, how much feministy taglines and messages reside with female consumers. So Mm -hmm. um, famous examples of this type of empowertizing, as Zizor calls it, uh, would be Dove's Real Bodies campaign. You also have the always hashtag like a girl campaign, which I loved personally. I mean, like... (laughs) Running like a girl. I don't know what that has to do with maxi pads, but it was like, that's <laughs> great to see, right? But what Zeisler does such a great job with is digging through those viral moments to really, you know, kind of question and explore and analyze like what that really means about modern feminism. Sure. And I mean, speaking of empower tizing, she goes deep on the issue of empowerment itself as well and uh, says that it's been drained of meaning and really now in the modern sense that we throw that word around in, it tends to relate to 
personal branding. It's becoming vague and apolitical rather than, you know, empowering groups of people and all of us working together and lifting as we climb. It's more about nowadays when we say the word Kim Kardashian taking a naked selfie. Yeah. Being used to justify whatever choices that you make, justify them as necessarily feminist. Mm -hmm. Um, And the book itself is also very accessible, regardless of how familiar you are or aren't with feminist philosophy or um, texts, because Zeisler's bread and butter is pop culture. Um, she even the, the first book that she wrote uh, was called Feminism in Pop Culture. And of course, Bitch Magazine is all about analyzing pop culture through a feminist lens. Mm-hmm. So the examples that she uses um, are very familiar, but she weaves that into a lot of research and a lot of uh, books and writing that honestly, I now want to go through and create a new reading list for myself to get a better feminist education. Absolutely. And and I feel the same way. And I, I guess I need to just quit my job and go live in a cave so that I can read all of the books. No, but it, well, can we podcast in the cave at least? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just can't do anything else. OK, so the cave will have Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And a whole audio setup. Same. You know, we'll bring Noel, our producer. It's fine. Okay, so you'll be in a sound studio in a cave. It just sounds really. It sounds like I'm describing my apartment. Like my apartment is very cave-like. Anyway, well, let's talk a little bit about Zeisler's background because she goes into it a little bit in our chat with her. But we want to give you a few more details about her um, and how she came to co-found Bitch. Yeah, one thing that I loved finding out about her was how clear she was kind of from the get-go about what she wanted to do. So she knew in high school she wanted to work in magazines. And even now in the interview, as you'll hear, she talks about how she still just adores print media. And she loved the fusion of politics and pop culture that she found in so many of the magazines that she was consuming. And she went after the very specific gig that she wanted. And that was an internship when she was 17 at Sassy Magazine, the famed Sassy Mag founded by Jane Pratt, which um, was really a foundational magazine, I feel like, for a lot of uh, Gen X women and millennial women, too, who have gone back and now like eBayed um, and like read old issues online. Um, so she worked there for a few months um, when she was, like I said, 17. And then she went to college and graduated in 1994 from Colorado College and hightailed it to California. Yeah, she went with her friend Lisa. And it was this pair of women who, disgruntled by the political climate in the wake of the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas debacle, the buyout of Sassy Magazine. So it was veering away from its original voice. And not to mention the fact that people in pop culture who were speaking out about feminism were ignored. Disgruntled by all this, these women co-founded bitch and that was in 95 they wanted to reclaim the word bitch because it's what women were being called to be dismissed anyway so we might as well reclaim it yeah i mean that's something that we talk about a bit in our podcast from a while back on the word bitch if you want to go back and listen to that after you listen to this um so in 2001 the first issue of bitch as a full-time organization 
was published. And because the Bay Area got really expensive in the 2000s, uh, in 2007, Bitch moved its HQ to Portland. So shout out to our Portland listeners. I know you're out there. And also Seattle. I count you both together. Although I know that you're different. Um, but you are joined in my mind. <laughs> um, and in 2009, Bitch became the nonprofit Bitch Media. And, I mean, painting with a large, broad brush, that basically brings us up to now, when she's written this fabulous new book that we enjoyed so much, and we definitely, definitely encourage you to pick it up. Mainly so then we can all be in a giant book club together and we can talk about it. Hooray! Uh, well... Let's go ahead and head on over to Ladyfest, where we will warn you that the audio is that of speaking live on a stage. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't sound quite as crisp as it normally does when we're here in our audio cave. (laughs) Um, But definitely keep on listening because Zeisler has many gems of wisdom to share. And just a quick note before we deliver those gems of wisdom from Andy Zeisler, uh, we want to let you know that towards the end of the episode, there are some questions from the audience at the event. Those questions didn't get picked up by the mics, unsurprisingly. And so you're going to hear uh, Kristen and me interjecting and basically summing up what those questions were so that we can all join in on the conversation. So with that, let's let the chat roll. Well, Andy, we're so excited to talk to you tonight. I'm so excited to talk to you and, and to you. Thanks for coming. Yeah, and thanks to Ladyfest and Karis and everyone who helped put this event together. Um, we have a lot to talk about, but we are going to save room at the end for questions. Um, so with that, shall we kick things off? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. All right. Well, since you are the co-founder of Bitch Magazine, we must ask you about how that came to be and also how sort of the bridge between founding Bitch and where pop culture was then and where it is today in relation to feminism. Oh, yeah. Um, well, this is our 20th anniversary. And um, I, I have to say, um, I'm, you know, certainly being asked to talk about that a lot this year. And, um, I feel like I need a, a better line of response because usually when people ask me, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm actually pretty bummed that we're still around. Um, because when we started in 1996, uh, you know, if you had told us how much things would sort of backslide, you know, politically, um, with respect to, you know, women's bodily autonomy and things like access to contraception, just really basic, uh, human rights type of stuff. We would have been like, no, we're, we don't want to do this project. It's too depressing already. <laughs> um, but, you know, but the, the, the flip side of that is I think that pop culture and media are places where that's where we really have seen a lot of evolution. That's where we've really seen a lot of positive stuff. And, um, you know, just to be able to, to have been a part of that, to have been a part of really locating pop culture and media as a a really fertile site of feminist analysis and criticism and change um it's really cool and uh you know as as far as you know how we started and why we started i mean we really just wanted to to take pop culture seriously um as a locus of activism and uh and 
highlight and, and celebrate the spaces where, where people were really bringing feminism in contact with this kind of like mass media culture that, that we all consume. Well, so what was the bridge from running bitch to then writing this book? Because you say in the introduction or towards the beginning of the book that as you started writing it, all of a sudden feminism became cool. So what was that bridge in between bitch and writing the book and what was going on as you were writing it? Yeah. So it's interesting because I had started, so uh, the book, the book feminism and pop culture that I wrote that came out in 2008, um, that was very much kind of like a primer on the, the symbiotic relationship between feminism and pop culture that had been going on since, you know, the, the early part of the 20th century. Um, and because so much had happened with respect to feminism and pop culture since 2008, um, around 2011, I started, you know, writing a proposal for a book that sort of updated it. Um, I, I speak a lot at colleges and universities. And so one of the things I hear a lot from students is, I really liked your book, but I feel like so much has happened or I feel like so much has changed or I feel like things have gotten better. I was like, you're absolutely right. Like this is a, this is, this would be a really good sort of project to, to talk about how much has changed and in many ways, how much has changed for the better. Um, uh, no one wanted that book. No one wanted to buy it. The original publisher of Feminism and Pop Culture did not want that book. And, um, I mean, I feel like this is kind of like maybe I shouldn't be telling tales out of school, but I thought that was really fascinating because what I really wanted to write was this kind of celebration of how pop culture had, um, had kind of moved the needle on feminism and vice versa, how these two, these two cultural forces were really influencing each other to do more and to, and to be better. Um, but as it turns out, um, the publishing industry wants you to say something kind of more controversial than things have gotten better. Um, and you know, when I, when I started thinking about it, you know, it, it did occur to me that there was kind of a flip side to feminism exerting more kind of pull in the, the realm of popular culture and feminism. And that was, um, that capitalism was also having a really profound effect on how people understood feminism and the need for feminism. And that in many ways, a lot of the concepts and the activism, uh, that had been nurtured within exclusively feminist spaces was suddenly being harnessed by capitalist forces to sell stuff to people, primarily women. Um, and so, you know, sort of looking at how advertising was, uh, kind of co-opting a lot of the feminist discourse that we had begun seeing online and at a grassroots level, that seemed like a, a fertile topic and a, and a way to sort of ask like, what happens what happens when you get what you want? You know what I mean? What happens when popular culture becomes more feminist? What happens when, uh, you know, media representations of feminism become widespread and celebrities start embracing it? And so for me, that was kind of the, the bridge and the, the question of, um, you know, can a social movement also be a trend and not lose anything for that movement? Well, could you argue that popular culture is becoming more feminist at this moment across the board, or is it just dressed like a feminist? You know, I think it is. I think, um, no, I think it is becoming more feminist. I mean, certainly there are ways in which it's, it's just dressing like a feminist. And I, I think we see that, um, maybe most starkly in the realm of, um, you know, sort of bald naked capitalism, like advertising. 
But if you look at, for instance, television, um, that's a medium that has become demonstrably more feminist in the sense that it is grappling not just with surface issues, but with systemic institutional issues. Who is creating stuff? Who's writing stuff? Who is having stuff funded? Uh, the economics of television have changed profoundly in a way that opens up a space for more feminist creation. You know, we no longer just have major networks. We have streaming services. Um, we have web series. We have ways in which um, creations that are alternatives to the status quo are, are really making an impact. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely feel like there are pockets where popular culture are becoming more feminist and and that those are also um, changing the lens through which many of us view all of popular culture. Um, you know, back in 1996 when we started Bitch, you really couldn't find much in mainstream culture that grappled with feminism. Uh, there was stuff in academia. You know, you had like Bell Hooks um, and Angela McRobbie and, and Dave Hickey talking about uh, issues with, with feminist politics and representation. And on the other end, you maybe had the occasional mention of feminism, usually negatively in a place like Rolling Stone. But there wasn't, there was a vast space in the middle that was neither looking nor caring to look at culture through a feminist lens. And now you have, you know, Entertainment Weekly talking about the Bechdel test. You have the New York Times you know, having two of its columnists debate, you know, women's roles in upcoming summer movies or talking about the economics of um, directing in Hollywood. So it really is a place where as a lens, as a critical way to talk about what is and is not existing in media and pop culture, um, it's a it's a it's a changed world. Well, and one thing that you talk about in the book that has also changed is our popular language of how we talk about feminism, or at least what uh, corporate uh, entities would have us think feminism is, specifically when it comes to something you term empowertizing, the whole thing of like buying the thing that will make you feel better about yourself because you're a strong woman. So uh, we wanted you to read a passage from the chapter in the book about empowerment, because I feel like as someone who spends like far too much time on the internet, uh, empowerment is a buzzword to the point that it's really meaningless in a lot of ways. Um, so could you read to us from that? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. So this is chapter seven. It's called Empowering Down. I have a bad case of empowerment fatigue. The causes are legion. PR emails that begin with the phrase, I represent a brand whose sole purpose is to empower women, particularly around that time of the month. <laughs> Women's magazine articles that promise empowering beauty tips, followed by celebrity interviews in which Jennifer Aniston exclaims that not wearing makeup for a role was so empowering. As a catch-all phrase that can be understood to mean anything from self-esteem building to sexy and feminine to awesome, empowerment has become a way to signify a particularly female way of being. It's both gender essentialist, because when was the last time you heard a strip aerobics class for men described as empowering, and commercially motivated? Over the past two decades, a partial list of everything that has been deemed empowering by advertising campaigns, pop culture products, and feminist rhetoric includes the following. High heels, flats, 
cosmetic surgery, embracing your wrinkles, having children, not having children, natural childbirth, having an epidural, embracing fat positivity, embracing anorexia, housework, living like a slob, learning self-defense, buying a gun, being butch, being femme, driving a truck, riding a motorcycle, riding a bike, walking, running, yoga, pole dancing classes, growing your own food, butchering your own meat, doing drugs, getting sober, having casual sex, embracing celibacy, being a good friend, being an asshole. By the time satirical newspaper The Onion announced, women now empowered by everything a woman does in a 2003 article, it really did seem that today's woman lives in a near constant state of empowerment. More than 10 years after that article, Empowerment's association with women, power, activism, and success seems to be its most robust legacy. And in media and popular culture, it's still very much in earnest and unquestioning use by younger generations who have never known the term as anything other than a way to say, this is a thing that I, as a woman, like to do. Empowerment is both a facet of choice feminism, anything can be a feminist choice if a feminist makes that choice, and a way to circumvent the use of the word feminist itself. But what is empowerment and who does it benefit? In most cases, the answers are, respectively, whatever I decide it is, and pretty much just me. Yeah, and that's that's a theme that comes up. Oh, yes, please clap. Uh, that's a theme that comes up again and again, the idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, empowering yourself. You are a feminist, so you're good. So that's, so that's good. And that's the end of the story. But so, so where did we get lost? I guess where, where did we take a wrong turn from, from having empowerment actually mean lifting as we climb and caring about the community and helping truly empower others to, to, to participate in this movement and where it is now, where if I wear high heels or flats, I am somehow empowered. Yeah. I mean, it, it really, and I, I mean, I talk about this in the book, how empowerment you know, originally started as this term that was about, you know, lifting as you climb and, and specifically about, you know, sort of marginalized communities and communities, um, that no longer wanted to be, you know, endowed by top down, you know, sort of charity focused organizations. Um, and it really was about a sort of ongoing ethic and a system. Um, and it has become more of a kind of static, finite concept where like you buy, so you buy something or you're empowered. You make a decision and you're empowered. Um, you choose to be empowered and that is, is itself in it, is in itself empowering. So, I mean, I think the short answer, um, is capitalism. And <laughs> sadly, that's the short answer for a lot of problems. Um, but yeah, it, it really does come down to this idea of, um, you know, the, the threat of what happens when women interface with structural power um, and sort of softening it into this idea of individuals rather than systems. So when we talk about empowerment, we're talking about individuals. We're not talking about um, foundational, transformational change that helps everybody. Um, and a lot of that is because of this concept of choice as the coin of the realm in feminism. And that's always been aspect, that's always been an aspect of feminist movements. I mean, it really, you know, it, it's not as though 
feminism was once this, you know, utterly pure, um, you know, completely other focused movement. There's always been elements of, you know, certainly, uh, personal advancement and compromise that leaves, you know, whole swaths of people out. So, you know, I, I think the, the shift toward empowerment as the overarching structure was somewhat organic, um, because feminism or feminisms more accurately, huge, huge movements that, you know, have always grappled with how best to address structural issues, how best to allocate power, um, you know, which issues are, uh, going to be outwardly focused and most appealing to people who need to get on board for it to succeed. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, um, you know, feminism has always been very ripe for kind of capitalist co-optation. And as we have become a much more marketplace society, as we have been encouraged to see consumer choice as sort of a stand-in for structural change, um, it makes a lot of sense that the empowerment framework would sort of replace the liberation for everyone framework. Well, and you, you say that, uh, feminism was ripe for this kind of co-optation. So I was wondering, compared to other kinds of social justice movements, like why feminism in particular being so vulnerable to this kind of, uh, effect? Yeah. I mean, that's such a good question. And, you know, it, it, I think that most social movements have seen some degree of co-optation, but I think feminism, um, because it has always, um, it has always addressed and sort of worked on women's innate need to appease other people and to present kind of a, a good, happy, um, not angry face to the world. I mean, I, I think it's <laughs> feminism has been very prone to internalizing, uh, the issues that all social movements face about, you know, what it means to, to ask for stuff, what it means to be unapologetic, what it means to really stand for something, um, and, and make people profoundly unhappy by just doing that. Um, so yeah, I think that there has always been this, this thread of like, well, if we can just make feminism attractive to more people, uh, then we'll really get what we want. And, you know, we've seen this try, we've seen this fail over and over again, because that's not how social movements work. They don't work by appeasing other people. Um, but for some reason, there's been a very strong thread, uh, both within the movement and from outside of really internalizing the criticism of, you know, if you just ask for this more nicely, maybe <laughs> we'll give it to you. Uh, if you just look a little prettier, just like shave a little, uh, <laughs> just a little. wear makeup, <laughs> you know, like maybe we'll consider getting on board with you. Um, and that's a dynamic that, that sadly is still very much in, in play. So, so speaking about getting on board with you, I did underline where you referenced Alan Alda in the seventies, <laughs> like getting on board with our bodies ourselves and, and getting on board with second wave feminism. And so that made me, I, I, so I you know, I'm, I'm like circling Alan Alda cause I'm like, yay, I love Alan Alda. And I had no idea that I loved him even more now. Um, and then I, you know, I drew an arrow and I was like, but Matt McGorry, 
because Matt McGorry, like, good for him. He, you know, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, he's one of the guards on Orange is the New Black. He's, like, a very outspoken uh, male feminist. He, you know, calls himself an ally. And, and on the one hand, that's great. But a lot of people are shouting him down, saying that he's, like, taking over the conversation and that he needs to have a seat and all of this stuff. So that's sort of the double, the double conundrum of like, okay, you've got celebrity feminism because in this marketplace feminism, it's, it's so cool to call yourself that whether or not you actually do anything with it. But then you've got the issue of, of men claiming feminism too. And Matt McGorry. So I'm just, uh, I don't know what my question is. Uh, <laughs> other than like, you just want to bash Matt McGorry. I don't, I don't, I kind of do, <laughs> but like I don't. Nice seems really he seems very sincere <laughs> yeah. but at the same time like i you know I, I okay so let's say we had instagram in the 70s and let's say alan alda took a shirtless selfie <laughs> holding you know the prominent feminist text of the time i, I mean a lot of it is really around optics and this yeah. idea of like um what is the, what is the reason? What is this person standing to gain? And I think, you know, again, we're such, we're a much more mediated culture than we were even 20 years ago, much less in the 1970s. And so there is this sense of like celebrities, it's, it's, it can be a lot easier to distrust them because we know that they're competing for airtime. We know that they are you know, one of, of millions of, of possible photo ops. Um, and we know that they, they do tend to sort of latch on to the zeitgeist, um, and use that for whatever they need to use it for. I mean, that's, that's what they do. Um, you know, Alan Alda was part of a, a targeted campaign by Ms. Magazine in the 1970s to really raise awareness on behalf of the Equal Rights Amendment being ratified. So there was a very tangible static goal there. And, um, and, and Ms. Magazine did this whole campaign where they went out of, uh, you know, after tons of people, um, you know, some of whom were really, uh, you know, sort of attractive and, and young and some of whom were more like old guard to sort of get, to sort of cover their bases in terms of who they wanted to, um, really be mouthpieces for the ERA. I think now it's a little bit more diffuse because there isn't just one issue. There isn't just one campaign that we're working toward. And there isn't just one entity that's really trying to sort of rally the troops. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's a valid, uh, there's a valid point to be made that we often reward um, the people for speaking up who are least challenging. And, you know, that could be a young white starlet like Emma Watson, um, who says things that feminist activists of all kinds have been saying for decades. But when she says it, everyone's like, whoa, I get it now. <laughs> it's coming out of this face and she's Hermione and all of a sudden she see like I'm getting it. And I think there's this idea too of like uh celebrities don't have to be feminist. They don't have to get on board. They have everything. So maybe if someone like Matt McGorry or Emma Watson is speaking up, that must mean it's valid. Um, there's a very weird way that we distrust people who we see having too much skin in the game. You know what I mean? Like 
people don't want to hear a rape victim talking about why rape is bad. They're like, whoa, she's too close to it. You know what I mean? It's almost like if we had, if we were like sending an astronaut to space and we were like, we can't send that guy. He's got too much of a physics background. Like we're going to send this dude who read a book. Um, so there's this, there's this weird distrust of like people with experiential knowledge and people who seem to care too much. And so when you have someone like Matt McGorry, uh, who's like this hunky actor on a hit TV show talking about the importance of feminism and like being all woke and stuff, um, you know, people are like, well, he doesn't have to do this. It must be legit. Um, and yeah, there's there's certainly a way where that can get wearisome, especially when, again, feminist activists of all stripes have been saying the same stuff for years and not getting even a fraction uh of the of the props for it so i gotta ask you about beyonce then because (laughs) i mean it's coming to that Uh (laughs) because one one uh moment that you cite early in the book is beyonce at the vmas standing in front of the massive like feminist uh you know backlit thing and in a lot of ways it seems like she was kind of the one who like opened up the floodgates of the the popularity that we see the zeitgeistiness of feminism so i'm curious to know your thoughts on on bay yeah i mean that was a huge moment and for someone like me who grew up in the 1980s wondering why someone like madonna would not align herself explicitly with feminism that was a huge moment um because again, so much of how a lot of my generation came to feminism was almost in spite of its terrible optics and its terrible PR. It was like, well, okay, everyone's expecting me to just be this, you know, gross person in an acid washed vest, um, talking about how much she hates men. And, you know, that's really not what it's about. But with Beyonce, the, the concept of you know, 8 million people, many of them young people, um, coming to feminism for the very first time, seeing it attached to the optics of Beyonce, you know, this beautiful, successful, biggest pop star in the world. That's incredibly powerful. And you saw in the days afterward that like just the Google searches for feminists just shot up. And it was like, that's, that's something, you know, if people if people's first asto- first association with feminism is Beyonce, um, I'm not going to argue with that. At the same time, that moment did not happen in a vacuum. You know, it happened in many ways uh, because of a, you know, decades-long groundswell of more grassroots feminist work and stuff that was really percolating on the internet and on social media and on college campuses and in, in, uh, you know, community organizing. So having Beyonce kind of put her flag in the ground for feminism also, you know, was, was fairly interpreted as a way to sort of capitalize that and make that part of the Beyonce brand, which already incorporated a lot of stuff. Um, so yeah, certainly I think there's, there's a few ways to look at it. Um, but I also think that Beyonce for some reason has been a really weird flashpoint for a lot of people who are otherwise, um, very gung ho about celebrity feminism. And we certainly saw this leading up to that VMA moment where, um, you know, Beyonce's feminism 
had been debated in public forums for years leading up to that. And it was like, oh, well, Beyonce's a feminist. Of course she's a feminist. Listen to Destiny's Child. But then like, oh, Beyonce's not a feminist. She's not wearing any pants. Um, so there were these very specific ways, many of them rooted in, uh, you know, racism that people did not want to allow Beyonce, that feminist identification in the same way they sort of took it at face value from a lot of other female celebrities. Yeah, we, we definitely, we did a Beyonce episode and we definitely got the exact same responses of like, she doesn't wear pants. And I didn't realize that. I don't wear pants to be a feminist, guys. I, I, wear, I mean, we're doing we're it. We're all so clearly. clearly. We got the memo. Good job, everybody. Yes. All right, for pants. But I mean, that moment, it was, it was a total like launch of a thousand think pieces moment. Oh, yeah. And the internet sometimes, I sound like such an old, the internet. Uh, can, can feel sometimes like it's collapsing in on itself, especially when it comes to the feminist think piece, capital F, capital T. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm wondering uh, about your take on that space on the internet and where's the line between helpful analysis and, and positive reporting on issues and like, you guys are just dogpiling each other about who's a better or worse feminist. Like, where's that line? And quickly before you answer that question, the, <laughs> that in the background of, um, something you wrote about in Bitch in a, an editor's letter not long ago about how feminist media has also been co-opted in a way of like, you have venture capital flowing into like women's sites to churn out these kinds of clickbaity pieces. Yeah. I mean, that's a, whew, that's a huge subject. Um, and that I feel like it's been coming up a lot lately because we do have this kind of the internet, especially with respect to women's subjects, feminist subjects has become this real clickbait economy where it often isn't about analysis. It's about pitting two viewpoints uh, against each other because these outlets know that it's going to generate, you know, a rash of hate reading and commenting and sharing that's going to translate into advertising dollars. It's not about furthering a conversation. It's about making money for, you know, organizations that in 10 years will probably have a completely different focus that's making an equal amount of money. Um, so, yeah. But uh in terms of, the, yeah, it's, it is, and again, this is not unique to this moment in feminism. There has always been a way in which it's much easier uh, to sort of have um, feminist viewpoints sort of sniping at one another and uh, and backbiting because it it saves us from having to tackle the really difficult, challenging. Uh, insurmountable questions that have to do with things like capitalism and institutionalized sexism. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's, it's natural and it's probably inevitable in many ways, but I do think we have to talk about the, the, uh, the way that it is becoming commodified to a vastly unhelpful degree. Um, you know, and as a, as a feminist media creator, I feel like it's hard for me to talk about this stuff without being accused of sort of sour graping or being jealous because yeah, I'm hella jealous <laughs> that like bustle got, I forget how much a lot, like 6.5 million in venture capital. 
um, because the, you know, the person who the venture capital capitalist who founded it was like, yeah, I don't know. I just, I just don't see a lot of feminist meeting media out there for women. Yeah. And like, we're over there going like us, you could give that money to like, do you know what we could do with like $500,000, much less 6.5 million? Uh, but, but yeah, it's sort of not about that. It's sort of about the idea that you're gonna, you know, you have your own thing that you own and that ends up churning out, you know, sort of listicles like the five times that Taylor Swift's cat was the most feminist cat ever. (laughs) Um, because again, like that's, that's easy. That for, that does not ask people to confront industries. It doesn't ask people to confront really entrenched systems. Um, it's fun and it, you know, makes us feel good about what we're consuming. It makes us feel like, okay, so this is feminist. That means it's okay for me to consume it. And I don't have to think too hard about, you know, the, the sort of larger scope of, of what's happening here. I don't know if I answered your question. I like went off on that. Sorry. <laughs> I just don't know if I answered that question. I have well, a lot of feelings about yeah. this. <laughs> well, and that brings up, um, a lot of this, uh, choice feminism that is written about, you know, a lot of those listicles, um, are kind of based around the whole, like I choose my choice, you know, uh, sort of ethos. And I'm wondering what the relationship is between choice feminism and what you term marketplace feminism, because it seems like they are like dependent on one another and did one, like, which came first kind of like, how do we yeah. untangle the two and get back to, you know, starting point. Yeah. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, choice feminism has, has always existed on some level as, as part of, uh, feminist movements and as part of the, the sort of discourse around what it means to be feminist. Um, and at the same time, marketplace feminism has always existed on some level in the sense that as long as there have been feminist movements, there have been industries, uh, and entities looking to cash in on them. Um, you know, so for instance, when, you know, in the, in the early 1920s, when it became okay for women to smoke cigarettes in public, you know, you had the two big tobacco companies basically saying, well, we can cash in on this because this is a huge new demographic for us. How are we going to do that? We're going to do it by equating the freedom to smoke with the freedom to, you know, be a citizen of the world and to exist in public. Um, and that was a, you know, that was a very canny move. Like advertisers are not dumb at all. Um, and as time has gone on, I definitely think that choice feminism has paralleled the development of an ever more consumerist, ever more individualist society. And the reason why I coined the term marketplace feminism and didn't just build on, you know, other pre-existing terms like commodity feminism or corporate feminism is because the idea of choice is so paramount. The idea that you can sort of go through life with this kind of buffet mentality, like, oh, I'm choosing this. This looks good. Yeah, that, no. Um, that you can just kind of embrace or discard things at will uh, and, and sort of cobble together uh, a feminist outlook or a feminist image or a feminist identity from them seems really important because, again, it allows people to engage um, with the most attractive or easiest aspects of feminism as a social movement and as a lens and as a politic and really refuse to engage with the ways in which it is structural, it is entrenched, 
Um, and it is not a rewarding kind of fight. You know what I mean? It's, it's like a, it's a battle. So. So feminism obviously has been co-opted in many ways by capitalism. Um, but it's also more popular than ever before, as you've talked about. So is it, is it a bad thing? Like all of the, the corporate interests aside, what do we do with this popularity of feminism? Because it seems, I mean, it seems like, Horrible to say, like, well, I wish it weren't so popular. Oh, no. <laughs> but you know, right. what do we no, do with that? Yeah, I mean, feminism, like feminism, it's not like an indie band that you're like, oh god, I was really into it and then they got popular and now they suck. We were you the know? original feminists, <laughs> and I think you know, and often when I talk about this stuff, that's the response I get. I mean, most of that is from people who don't care about feminism and are not interested anyway, and they're basically just trolls. Like, oh, she doesn't like feminism anymore. It's <laughs> <laughs> too popular. <laughs> Um, but that's not really it. I mean, I, I think the most, and, and this is, again, this has always been true. I think the most important part of sort of harnessing feminism's moment, um, for a lasting impact and a more than surface level effect is really critical thinking. Um, and, and thinking about like, well, you know, what is the difference between a corporation using feminist language but not changing any of its business practices, say. What's the difference between that and between, you know, small independent companies, say, you know, coming up with inventions that, that truly are toward a more equal world or marketing concepts that, that really do try to take the shame out of, I don't know, like menstrual products or condoms or something like that. I think there's a difference. And we live in a society and a consumer cultural culture that often tries to flatten those differences and convince us that one product is the same as the other or one parent company is the same as the other. And I think it's really up to us as consumers and as people who are constantly marketed to, um, to really put the onus on ourselves to decide which is which and to really use as much of our critical thinking faculties as we can to, um, to think about, you know, are we, what are we doing? Is it in the service of equality? Is it in the service of um, really making the world an equitable place for everyone? Or is it just in the service of doing the work of multinational corporations for them? Yeah, I mean, you speak extensively about Dove, for instance, in the book with their, you know, decade plus of campaigns and how those have evolved uh, all around, you know, real bodies, et cetera, et cetera, and, and body positivity and things like that. So, I mean... Is it is it better, could you argue, to support a company like Dove that's like using their evil powers for slightly less evil <laughs> reasons? Or? Yeah, I mean, that that's a good question, because and, and again, this is a place where we're sort of like um, we often feel very powerless against capitalism. And it's 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 very natural to be like, well, I'm going to be advertised to anyway. Um, which is the least bad way to sort of negotiate my role as a consumer within that. Um, and, and Dove is a, Dove is a really interesting example because when that campaign for real beauty started, it was really promising. You know, they had, they had scholars, they had global studies. Um, the early ads really were, um, jarring in a very beautiful, impactful way that they were using bodies and people and faces um, that we never associate with beauty. Um, but as time went on and it became more, you know, widespread and, and it got more notice, 
it started becoming more and more homogenized to the point where now it's sort of like this kind of very empty platitudes um, that pay lip service to the idea of difference, but don't represent it in any meaningful way. Um, and so, you know, I think that's important. And then all the while, of course, they're peddling, you know, skin lightening cream to women across South Asia um, or, you know, making Axe body spray or whatever. <laughs> You know, that's, I mean, that, it, you know, Dove's parent company is the same parent company as, as Axe Body Spray, as Fair and Lovely Lightning Cream. So that matters. Um, so it's sort of like, well, is it better to support Dove than to support, I don't know, who else makes this stuff? I'm, I'm try, trying to think of another soap company, like, I don't know. Avino. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. got Jennifer Aniston. Right. <laughs> she knows so much about feminism. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I think we're in a, but we're in a good place now because it's sort of like, well, we, we could support Dove and we could buy into the line that like, well, they really want us to be more confident. Um, but also maybe my underarms aren't white enough. Uh, and it just so happens that they created this deodorant to make my underarms look better. Um, so we could, yeah, right. We were all waiting for it. Um, so we could support that, but we could also go on Etsy you know, a corporation that actively recruits, you know, female developers and supports female uh, creators and artisans. And we could buy some soap that's made by a person who is not going to turn around and use those profits for their parent company to promote racism in South Asia. It's like we have more choices than we did even a decade ago. Um, so I think a lot of the time it really is, again, a matter of thinking about, you know, where your dollars are going to make a difference because we'll always be consumers. We'll always be encouraged to consume. Uh, we'll always be tempted to consume. It can be really fun. Um, but I think the best tools that we have at our disposal now are, um, are really our, our critical thinking faculties and our ability to research, um, what it means for a company like Dove to be, uh, kind of co-opting the language of, of feminism. Caroline, trips to the post office are never convenient. So why aren't we getting our postage right from our desks? Because you know what? We can with Stamps.com. That's right. And here's how it works. You can use your own computer and printer to buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Just drop it in the mailbox. It's that easy. And right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code STUFF to get a special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Get started with Stamps.com today. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com. Enter stuff. So now comes the Q&A portion of our Lady Fest event with Andy Zeisler. And like we said at the top of the podcast, the audio was a little sketchy uh, when uh, the audience members were speaking. And so we're, we're going to paraphrase. And the first audience member who stood up and asked a question wanted to Further the conversation that we had sort of touched on during the interview about Beyonce, right? Beyonce is such a lightning rod in the, in the conversation around modern feminism. And with the release of her album Lemonade and her videos for Lemonade, um, we saw Bell Hooks come out and write an essay basically 
Bell Hooks was not down <laughs> with Beyonce's Lemonade. And so this audience member who feels really invested in both Beyonce and Bell Hooks as feminists described how she felt like this was evidence of a larger schism in modern feminism, perhaps a generation gap. And so here's Andy addressing that audience member's question. Yeah, I mean, that's it is that's that's I've had those same reactions to to reading bell hooks on Beyonce. And especially because, you know, bell hooks was the one who wrote a book called Feminism is for Everybody, you know, and she's been such a um, someone who has done so much incredible foundational work in locating, um, you know, critical feminist and race theory within pop culture. So it is, it's very, it's very hard to read stuff like that. It, it feels like, you know, your, your moms are fighting or your two favorite aunts are fighting and you're just like, stop. Um, you know, but I, I also think it can be worthwhile to have conversations about, you know, the, the limits of this kind of discourse and the limits of, um, sort of trying to define what is a pure feminism. And I think, you know, this provides an opportunity to say maybe there's no such thing. You know, maybe we're all working in these very circumscribed systems, um, where obviously our experiences and our, um, priorities are going to affect how we, um, how generously we sort of understand one another's, um, goals. And there may be places where we're not always going to agree. And I think that's certainly been a long time fracture within feminist movements, this idea that there has to be a unified front. Um, and I, you know, I feel like most of the young activists I've come into contact with over the past two decades have been, have really opened my eyes in terms of, of saying like, it, it, it can't, it's not going to just be one movement because if it is, it's going to be the same as it ever was. And the concerns of the loudest, the richest, the whitest, uh, the most privileged, are always going to rise to the top. Um, so maybe we need to let go of the idea that it needs to be a united front. So that's me trying to be optimistic about that. Uh, I'm obviously, yeah. <laughs> so the second question was coming from a young woman in the audience who wanted to know whether there were any alternative paths toward gender equality that Zeisler could suggest. She asked, do you have any insight on models to dismantle structures? Because she said, I feel like a lot of responses to feminism today are tear it down, build a new thing, which is the philosophy I subscribe to. But not everyone has the luxury of fighting the system every day. Well, and that's similar to I'm going to piggyback on that question, because I was wondering how you take this and the idea of feminism being something that you do, not just a label that you wear because it's really cool. Um, if you are someone who feels powerless to create that kind of systemic change, or maybe you're just exhausted because you have like two jobs and a kid, whatever it might be, you know what I mean? Like in the same kind of way of like, what are the accessible ways that we can do the work of feminism? Yeah. And again, I think this is one of those places where we are in a very, very lucky and, and fruitful time to be having these conversations. Um, you know, I think even 
in the past, like even when I was in college in the 1990s, there was this sense of like, if you weren't going to go whole hog, if you weren't going to go all in and devote your life to being an activist, what was the point? Because you wouldn't conceivably be able to do much. Um, so there was this sense of like, well, I don't, you know, I don't have the bandwidth to, to march all the time. I'm not, uh, a rabble rouser. I, you know, you know, people felt like, what can I do given the type of person I am with the constraints I have in my life, uh, with the needs I have to, you know, go to school or have, you know, have a job or, or support my family. And I think now we're in a time where there are so many more avenues that we actually see working as modes of activism and modes of change. Um, you know, a lot of people get down on things like social media and Twitter or, you know, say, you know, call it slacktivism or hashtag activism or something. But in fact, social media has opened up so much more space for activism among people who probably would not have identified as activists, um, who for reasons of their families or their religion or their jobs would not be able to be an activist in the classic mold. But with the, you know, with the time they have, with the tools they have, are able to be part of really huge um, transformational campaigns and discourses around feminism and activism. Um, you know, likewise, I think we see more people understanding that it activism isn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to be a career. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that you do 24-7. And if you don't do it 24-7, that doesn't mean you're a failure as an activist or shouldn't be doing it or are a dilettante. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of really concrete ways that we see people making change simply by speaking up, being part of a community, being part of a project, um, you know, devoting a finite set of hours and resources to, to working on the issues that they care about. And I think too, we see a way in which, um, the kind of, uh, pluralism of activism, the, the way that you don't have to be one kind of feminist or one kind of anti-racist. Um, we see ways in which that actually makes a difference. Like maybe it's good to be less of a generalist and more of a specialist in terms of activism. So yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think we're in for people who care about issues, who have specific issues that they want to work on. Um, I, I think at this point, there's kind of no excuse for, for not at least like getting your foot in there and, and, and starting to do it. So our third question came from an audience member who wanted to know not only whether we thought that the feminist movement happening right now would maintain its momentum, but also whether it would help to propel real change. I think it already is. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if we just look at like language and awareness around gender, for instance, which in a lot of ways was fostered through social media and through the internet. I mean, I feel like that's something huge that's broken through. Yeah. I mean, I think just the, the, the breaking out of language that is often, um, sort of cosseted in these movements 
having ways to sort of disseminate that out into the world, I think is really powerful. I mean, I, you know, I use the example of like, uh, the Steubenville rape case in Ohio or the Bill Cosby case where, you know, we saw language that had previously been kind of confined to feminist activist spaces coming in contact with mainstream media. And maybe they shrugged at it at first. Maybe they were like, ugh victim blaming, what's that? But, you know, the more you repeat something and the more it becomes accessible and legible, um, the more it becomes just part of a sort of quotidian ambient feminism. And I think that's what's happening. You know, I mean, we all understand now that, you know, domestic violence is not something that's okay and you shouldn't be able to like beat your wife and get away with it. In the 1960s, that was a new concept. So yeah, I mean, things have had lasting effects. Um, and I, I absolutely think they will going forward as well. And it may be like a one step forward, two steps back or two steps forward, one step back situation, but it's going to happen. So as a follow up to the previous question, another person raised their hand to ask whether social media and so-called slacktivism, as it's often derisively referred to, can also make an impact and change the world offline. So. I don't, some of you might remember, like, it was several years ago when the, the Susan G. Komen Foundation, the, the breast cancer, uh, charity decided that they were no longer going to fund mammograms for low income women at Planned Parenthood because Planned Parenthood also does abortions. Um, and they really thought they were going to get away with that. Uh, they did not count on the power of social media and the power of a kind of rapid response to really destabilize this idea that, you know, um, they didn't have to be transparent as a charity organization. Um, and a lot of that was focused on, it wasn't just focused on abortion. It was focused on this very intersectional idea of, sure, abortion is accessible if you're already in a particularly privileged place, um, but mammograms, uh, and, you know, the ability to access contraception and all these things are also part of reproductive rights and reproductive justice. And I think, again, this is one of those things that the enormity of it, the response and the fact that Planned Parenthood was able to, you know, m- raise more in donations than they would have stood to lose from the defunding. I think that really made an impact on people understanding that it's not, you know, it's not just about uh, abortions. It's not just about access. It's about really holding institutions and the people who run them accountable for the things that they want to take away from people. Um, and so I always, you know, I always think of that when I think about, you know, social media and its ability to really make change. Um, because I do think the more we talk about, uh, issues around you know, you know, that are feminist adjacent or civil rights adjacent, adjacent, the more social media is able to, um, kind of really break them down and point out the ways in which they are, uh, in which they overlap with a lot of other issues and the ways in which they aren't black and white and they aren't cut and dry. They have all these other elements. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, again, like this might just be me being optimistic, but I have a lot of faith in, uh, in social media to kind of make very big monumental conversations, uh, very accessible and very legible to people who might even be coming to them for the very first time. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that we've seen, too, uh, running this Fenty social media. It's beautiful to watch people, uh, whether it's around issues of sexuality or gender, race, ethnicity, uh, you know, socioeconomics, be able to form these communities and find each other and talk and, and, and create movements. But I am curious about, is there sort of a, like an in-group fallacy going on almost? Because at the same time that we're seeing all of these beautiful movements and people coalescing online and in real life, we're also seeing reproductive rights chipped away. We're seeing trans rights and LGBT rights chipped away uh, with things like the North Carolina bathroom bill. So like, how are those two things, <laughs> these, these two things are coexisting? Yeah, I mean, and that's definitely a good point. I think um, I see these things kind of happening in part because there is such a groundswell of movement that people are panicking. Uh, we are, as a society, extremely prone to doing this kind of zero-sum thing where we assume that any gains for one group mean a loss for the other group. And so, I mean, I think so much of the panic and the fear um, around things like trans rights and uh, women's reproductive autonomy are in part a result of the gains that have happened and the fact that we do see much more more of a signal boost for these things. Um, yeah. This question came to us from basically the leader of Atlanta's Lady Fest, Chelsea. And she, she brought up some really good points. She said, you know, there are a lot of women-centric events that happen like Lady Fest. They're all women. They celebrate women. But she was saying that she felt really torn because here she is spending a lot of time and money helping Lady Fest happen and helping it blossom and featuring women and that, yes, it is important to have these spaces. But the thing is, if women are celebrated just once a month, but the rest of the year, she says, it's still dude fest every day. How do we tackle this? How do we bring more women into the everyday discussion? That's such a good question. I mean, that's such a I mean, it's, it's kind of evergreen. I mean, I remember in the late 1990s, um, going to Lilith Fair and really sort of grappling with the idea of like, what does it mean that this festival is now letting all these other like total sausage party music festivals essentially off the hook for having any female participation? Um, and, and, you know, what does it mean too, that it's kind of then essentializing this idea of what kind of music women make? Um, and what kind of art they make and what kind of art is appealing to other women. Um, so I think that's, it's, it's such a good question. It's such a complicated question. And frankly, I'm not really sure how to answer it. Um, you know, except to say that I think it's possible to sort of simultaneously do this work of saying, you know, it's important to, to celebrate, um, you know, women, people who identify as women, the work they do, the, um, the importance of, of having that space for them and also really talk about what it, what it means to sort of segment out. And does that go against uh, a sort of larger project of, of really building equity for everyone in these spaces? Well, that's all the time that we have for questions. Although, can I ask one final quick question? A high note. Um, and since don't you, let it be about Hillary Clinton, please. Oh God, no. <laughs> no. 
Just like really waiting for that. (laughs) Uh, No, I wanted to know since pop culture is your jam, I wanted, I was wondering if you have any pop culture shout outs. Like what, what are your favorite things happening right now? That you love. Oh my God. This is this question where like, I need to prepare a list because like everything flies out of my head. <laughs> it's like going to the grocery store without a list. You're just like walking out <laughs> with everything. Um, I know there's, there's so much that I've loved in the past, uh, year. And I will say that it's mostly TV related because, um, I work a ton and I have a child. So I rarely leave my house to be entertained. Uh, so like a ton of Netflix stuff, like, um, Master of None. I just loved, I'm so excited for it. I would watch like seven seasons, like right in a row. Um, and I, I know people are sort of mixed on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, but I sort of love it. I just think it's so, um, it's just so fast paced and it's so kind of rapid fire referential. And I think it really rewards people who are kind of like me, pop culture obsessives, um, I am, I've been obsessed with Game of Thrones since the start. And I feel like that obsession is really starting to pay off this season. And I'm now that they've like, finally broken away from the books. I know. And Sansa can right? have a better role. Yeah. Like, nah, I'm not going to like spoil anything, but it's getting real. So <laughs> it's good. Um, yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's funny cause I, this is not always like a, a feminist thing, but as a magazine geek from way back and as someone who like truly loves print media, I just, I love the fact that magazines are kind of this, uh, they become kind of this like niche property that really reward again, people who are obsessives and who are kind of collectors. Like it's no, it no longer feels like a disposable medium. It feels like this very special, um, this very special place of, uh, of discovery. And, uh, yeah. So that little feedback. Yeah, feedback. Well, I think uh, that feedback is being like, y'all get off the stage. Like um, so, Annie, thank you again so much thank for talking so to much. us. Thank you for having me. It was so fun. And also thank you for writing this book. Seriously, yeah. it is fantastic, funny, well-researched, so accessible. I highly recommend it. Um, we were feminists once back at the table. Go get one. one. Yeah, this is getting better. We better get our So again, we just want to thank Andy Zeisler so much, not only for talking to us at LadyFest, but also for all the work that she's done, um, n- not only with building Bitch, but also with being a voice in her own right for feminism today. Um, and of course, for writing her newest book, We Were Feminists Once, which we do highly recommend that you check out. And while you're at it, head on over to bitchmedia.org where you can find all sorts of great articles, podcasts, uh, magazines that you can can buy and hold in your hands. I'm a subscriber to Bitch Magazine, so I can personally attest to how fantastic it is to open my mailbox and have a physical copy of Bitch in my hand and know that I'm supporting feminist independent media because that's so important. I agree. And I want to now hear from listeners who do support independent feminist media out there. Where are our bitch fans, our bitch subscribers? Have you already read 
Andy Zeisler's book. What do you think about it? And do you have anything to add to the fabulous insight that Andy gave us during that interview? Let us know. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I have a letter here from Toby in response to our wartime prostitution episode by the name of Buffer of Horrors. Uh, she said, I noticed that you kept bringing up questions of whether the women involved were forced, coerced, economically coerced, or freely choosing their work. I'm glad to hear you recognizing the issues is not a simple yes or no question and that there's a lot of gray area in how people experience doing sex work. However, this approach tends to create a subtle implication that all sex workers can be split into victims or empowered based on whether sex work was their first choice career or their only choice. The reality is that regardless of how or why someone ends up working in the sex industry, it's often more important to look at what working conditions were like. Do you have the right to refuse a client? Are you paid well enough to take care of your needs even if you refuse a client? Can you take time off and still have a job to come back to? Do you have recourse against violence or do you get arrested when you go to the police for help? Do you have access to medical care for all your health needs or are you only given STI checks to protect the health of your clients? Do you have freedom of movement or will you get arrested when you enter or leave certain parts of a city? Many areas that temporarily legalized prostitution would create restrictions on what parts of town sex workers were allowed in And today, many cities continue this with their prostitution-free zones. These are concrete issues that make a big impact on your experience of work. Even if someone likes their job as a sex worker, it's still pretty terrible to get kidnapped with all of your coworkers and thrown on a boat for several months without the ability to leave or contact your friends and family who aren't there with you. And for those who hate their job and wish they had other options, it still is really valuable to know you can report a client for assaulting you without getting arrested and that you won't get arrested if you try to leave the red light district in your town. All valuable perspectives. So thank you, Toby. So I've got a letter here from Bird on our episode about the misgendering of HIV. And Bird writes, your description of the New York Times and quote unquote cancer was incorrect. Kaposi's sarcoma is cancer, typically found in late-stage HIV and AIDS infections, as the body can no longer fight off infection. It leaves telltale purple lesions all over the body. KS was prevalent before antiretroviral treatments were accessible, and it was a telltale sign of an HIV infection. I work in a dermatology clinic in Beverly Hills, and recently we had a young, affluent, white, homosexual male patient come in with KS and Meloscum, and it was heartbreaking. The physician I work for said, that's not how we diagnose AIDS anymore. That's how it was in the 80s. KS is extremely rare now, but at one time, it was a visual marker of infection. The patient refused testing from his primary care physician, stating he was taking care of it somewhere else or was getting homeopathic testing. I can't remember exactly. I was struck by this interaction and felt so powerless. It prompted me to speak with my mom regarding her experience as an infectious disease physician in the 1980s. A very interesting conversation, and I'm sure she'd be willing to speak with you all if you wanted. I can't find a YouTube clip, but urge you all to watch Angels in America, as KS is mentioned in a strikingly poignant line, the wine-dark kiss of the angel of death. Well, thank you so much for that correction, Bird, and thanks so much to everyone who has written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address, and for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. Bye.
more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.